pray before we read. Father, I thank you for John's Gospel. I thank you for all of your words, your revelation to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you give me words to speak well of Jesus, of whom we will read. In his precious name. Amen. So John 12, verse 37 to 43. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. John's Gospel, I think we said it before, can be divided into two halves. We have the book of signs in chapters 1 to 12, and then in chapters 13 to 21, the book of glory, the book of signs where Jesus does his enumerated signs, miracles, and the book of glory which focuses particularly on the Passion Week. Sometimes the book is divided in a slightly different way into the prologue in chapter 1, and then his public ministry 2 to 12, a turning point in chapter 13, and following his private ministry, taken up then the upper room discourse and the high priestly prayer. So how do you divide the two halves, book of science, book of glory, public ministry, private ministry? In either case, Chapter 12 is a turning point because the signs are now done and the ministry is now turning to Jesus talking to his disciples. And we've entered the last week of Jesus' life and he will turn his and our attention to final instructions that he gave to his disciples and ultimately setting his face to go to Jerusalem to the cross. So this last part of chapter 12 deals with a question that has prompted popped up more than once. Why unbelief? Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before, they still did not believe in him. Now, John's Gospel was written for either those who were seeking Christianity or perhaps new Christians or an apologetic for Christianity. And they would have been familiar with many who had rejected the Gospel. And the church was small, struggling to hang on to, to hang on in those first decades in particular. So the question was really uppermost in their mind, and it should be uppermost in our mind as well, actually. Why do people not get it? Why, why do people not believe? And Jews in particular would have asked this question. Why? If this is the Jewish Messiah, why is it? Why so few of the Jews believe in him? Well, some are believing in him. Verse 42 says, 
nevertheless many even of the authorities believe in him. Now that could be that superficial faith that we've seen before in John's Gospel. It may turn into a saving faith. But right now it's more of a private assurance amongst themselves. That they think he is the real thing. But they don't dare say it to anyone else. So it's not very robust. But there are people who are believing. But so far it has been the outsiders, like the royal official, or some Samaritans have got it, or but not the Jews, in particular the Jewish leaders. Many of them thought Jesus had a devil. They wanted to kill him, and they will kill him in the week's time. We're quite used to the church being almost entirely Gentiles. There are a few of Jewish background in the church, but most of us are non-Jews, Gentiles. That seems very ordinary. But for the early church, and it should be for us a burning question, the Jewish rejection of the Messiah was, was one of the biggest obstacles to faith. If Jesus really was the fulfilment of these promises, and he was their prophet, priest, and king, and he was the one that they had been looking for, why did so few believe in him? He was prophesied as the Messiah. Why so few? Especially among the leaders. Remember John 1. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. In verse 37, the word signs is a unique word in John's Gospel. It's called semion. Dunanis is used in the other Gospels. Then the Gospel is the power unto God for salvation. The dunanimous, the power. Seminon is a word only in John. Dunanimous is the word used for a demonstration of Christ's power in miracles, for example. Semion, though, refers to the signs. John 20, at the end of the book, when we read about the purpose, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So these signs, semion, were demonstrations of divine power, the same as the Dunandis and the other Gospels, but they were signs because John makes it really clear they pointed to Jesus. And if you remember, there were seven of these signs, semion. There's the first of chapter 2, turning the water into wine. The second is chapter 4, when he healed the royal official's son. The third is chapter 5, when he healed a lame man. The fourth is in chapter 6, when he fed the 5,000. The fifth is also in chapter 6, when he walks on the water. The sixth is in chapter 9, when he heals the man born blind. And the seventh is chapter 11, when he raised Lazarus from the grave. So that's the seven signs, which is why the first half of the book is often called the book of signs. You could argue that each sign points to the lordship of Christ over different struggles of life. That may not be why John organises them, but we are, it's good to see them that way. It's fair to see them that way. Water into wine is Jesus' lord over life's problems distractions, the healing of the official son. Jesus is Lord over our families, our warriors. He healed the lame man because Jesus is the Lord over disease. 
wonderfully poignant and timely to be reminded of that. He fed the 5,000 because he is the Lord over hunger and deprivation. He walked on water because he is the Lord over nature's power. He healed the man born blind because he is the Lord over innate disability and specifically assigned the spiritual disability and blindness. And he healed Lazarus, showing that he is the Lord over death. It's helpful to see the signs that see Jesus is Lord over many of our, the things that take up our worries and our anxieties. We are meant to meet and re-meet this Jesus over and over in John's Gospel. He is the Lord, he is the Lord, he is the Lord, he is the Lord. And um, one of the reasons I really love John's Gospel so much because we meet Jesus as Lord over our lives. These signs that point to the Lordship of Jesus. They show his deity. He did all that. But he didn't believe. Though he done so many signs. Sometimes you can reason, can't you, flawlessly with people. You, 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 you're so you're on fire because you, you can see the proofs for the resurrection. So you tell your friends and family about the proofs for the resurrection. You can give your best apologetic from the Bible. And it's right to do this. You talk to them about the manuscript evidence and the reason to trust the New Testament. And they do not believe. And they do not believe. So sometimes yeah, we, we're all, we all pray for people close to us, so whether it be family or friends, people we come across, people we feel for deeply. And we keep speaking and speaking and praying and praying, and the truth is laid before them. They don't believe. And you argue, argue with passion, and you pray with tears until your knees are raw, and you plead. It seems to make no difference. As a pastor, think you can preach the best sermon of your life. We don't believe. We marvel at faith. The Gospels marvel at unbelief. They had Jesus in front of them. They saw 5,000 fed with two fish sandwiches. They saw a man dead, but he's alive, Lazarus. How did they respond? Kill him. Kill him. And we're fooling ourselves if we think if I had been there it would be so much different. I, I think the truth is we would have gone along with the crowd blinded by the cultural assumptions blinded by the mentality of the mob. Now the Gospels are surprised that people do not believe. So how do we explain unbelief? Well unbelief is not unprecedented. Verse 38 it's so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And those famous words from Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Most were not going to get Isaiah's message, and most did not get Jesus' message. So these opening lines from one of the most famous chapters of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, they sound so familiar to us that we tend not to stop to think what are they communicating? Lord, who is going to believe our report? All of these 
it says about Jesus, who is going to believe it? And even though they hear the report, some will not believe it. To whom is the arm of the Lord, which means his strength, his power, his might? So even in Isaiah's day, they're praying, they're saying, they, they will see the strength and the might of the Lord, and some will not believe. We're not so much rational people as much as we are rationalising people. We find reasons to believe. We find reasons to disbelieve. We find reasons to justify what we have already decided we want to actually happen. All around we see people justifying the life because they've already decided that's how they want to live. And they find reasons to support it. But the fact of the matter is to really believe, is to surrender and believe. So believe takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Come back to John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We are miracles of grace in this room because the Holy Spirit has worked a miracle in our lives. Now I can't make it happen no matter how much I preach. Parents can't make it happen. No book can make it happen. God uses those things, the preaching of his word, the loving care of a parent, a Christian book. But it is the Spirit working through his word that works a miracle of new birth. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to those he called as children of God, to those he gave the gift of new life, he gave the right to be called sons and daughters of God. It takes a miracle. It takes a miracle. A revival is when more people get it quickly, but that is not the norm. We pray for it. But it's normally slow, it's normally organic, and it takes a new heart. So, why unbelief? Three reasons in our short time together. People do not believe in Jesus Christ because God has hardened their hearts. That is not always the case. It seems to be the case here. One of the reasons why people may not believe is that God may harden their hearts. Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. Now this does not mean that they came to God and say, we want to be Christians, and God says, you can't. It does not mean that they say, we repent of our sins and we want to believe in Jesus, and God said, too late. No, it means a judicial hardening that they would have no softening to the gospel. They get what they want. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So no one comes to Jesus and says, I want to believe. And he says, you're not one of my people. No, this is a judicial hardening. And immediately in this context, it is for the Jewish leaders. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And his heart was also hardened. All three of those constructions are used in the book of Exodus. And the passage quoted in verse 40 is from Isaiah 6, which is the go-to passage in the early church to explain why are so many people not believing in Jesus. He was there. They had the signs. They had the teaching. They don't, people don't believe. 
Why not? They went to this text. Matthew 13, 14 makes that clear. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will hear and never understand. So in Matthew, Isaiah 6 is used. In Mark, Mark 4, verse 12, that they may see and not perceive, and may indeed hear and not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Speaking about the many who do not believe, do not understand these parables. Go to Isaiah 6. And Luke, Luke 8, verse 10, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Again, drawing from Isaiah 6, it's given in Acts, Acts 28, verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. So from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, with the Apostle Paul, this was the answer for Jesus and the early church. Why are so many people not believing? Isaiah saw it. Isaiah prophesied it. God said this would happen. The New Testament writers drew on Isaiah 6. Their hearts are hard. God has given them to their hard hearts. Turning back to John, verse 40, He has blinded their hearts, eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. In other words, God is sovereign over unbelief. It does not negate human responsibility. It is still their unbelief. Verse 42 and 43 is going to give one of the reasons why, that they love the praise of men. For in the scope of redemptive history, it serves its ultimate purposes because the gospel was largely rejected by the Jews, would then go to the Gentiles. This is in this moment of judicial hardening, God's judgment on the wicked who have chosen to reject it. It's about God handing people over to their unbelieving hearts. God exercising judgment in this life on the wicked by blinding their eyes so they do not see and hardening their hearts so they do not understand. That's the point I was trying to get at it last week when I said that to be in church, a gospel preaching church, is the place of greatest privilege to hear the truth about Jesus. But it's the place of great danger. Because there is a promise from Isaiah, the word of God does not return empty. The word of God is doing something this afternoon. Because the word is working. The word is working. The word is doing something in our lives. And, and I'm so thankful that it has given us new life. I pray it is bringing healing. I pray it brings maturity in life. And as the Puritan said, the same sun that melted the butter hardened the clay. So it's, it's for us to cry and pray for many that they wouldn't persist in unbelief, lest God gives them over to their desires. We must walk in the light as we are given to the light. So that's the first reason why unbelief. 
The second is people do not believe in Jesus because they love the praise of man. We see this in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Confession is critical. Public confession. I was um, even telling my boys some of the times that I remember most from you know, difficulty from, gr from growing up was when my parents sent me to school and I had to make a public confession of my faith. My parents did, you know, did that to me and sort of in, in work and I wouldn't go to some lessons. I'm not sure that I would do it the same way myself because, boy, it messed up my head. But there is something about public confession that is very good for the soul. Because private friendship means little without public identification. If you've ever had a friend who feels betrayed or is attacked or is giving bad press in the media, it's so easy to be nice to them privately without sticking up for them publicly. It's so easy, you know, but it's not the same. And it's nice to get the encouragement. I, I love you, I'm praying for you. But it means a lot more when somebody publicly identifies with you. Now, you know, I know that person, I trust that person, that person is a good character. I like that person, I'm, you know, I'm with that person. But it becomes, you know, that is the scandal of Christ and the cross, to privately say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I'm with you. And to publicly say it, so everyone knows, everyone knows that you belong to Jesus. The school, your workplace, your family. It's, it's, it's more of a test now than it was 10 years ago. It's more of a challenge now, the scandal of Christ and the cross. And we find all sorts of acceptable ways. You, know, you go to church and you say, I'm a Christian. But to be a real on fire, Jesus kind of person, no, you're talking about him, you're singing about him, you orient your life about him, you like your Bible, you can't help but mention him. That's a little bonkers these days. Matthew 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. When we, we, when we stand before the judgment seat, Jesus will say, she was not afraid to stand with me. I will gladly stand with her. And there'll be others, they privately said one thing, but publicly they never did. They were too embarrassed to be seen with Jesus in life. So why would they think that they would be seen with him in eternity? In order to be saved, what does Romans say? You must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So there's something about making public your allegiance, your submission to the Lordship of Christ. The reason we don't do certain things, the reason we live the way we do, is because we are submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Demonstrates our love for him more than physical comfort or social status. And before we're too hard on these people in John 12, think of their situation. Many of the authorities, these were important people. These were the, uh, re, uh, the elite, 
the religious elite, the governing rulers. And they, they were quietly saying, under their breath. I wasn't going to say behind their masks, but probably too soon. But he has a point, you know, this might be the man. Privately to themselves, how many do you think said, I think I believe. But publicly, no. Because they feared the Pharisees more than they feared God. You know, the Pharisees had the power. They had the people behind them. And they thought they would be kicked out of the synagogue. They thought they wouldn't be able to go for worship. They would be persona and gratia in the community. They loved the glory that come from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's not be too hard on them because we see many who sell out Jesus for a lot less. Some like the glory that came from the media more than the glory that comes from God. I'm so impressed with Tim Farron's testimony because when he was the leader of that political party, one minute he did, if you like, bow to the pressure of the media. But then he publicly repented and said, no, I love more the glory that comes from God than the glory that comes from the media. So I mean, but it's a very difficult position to be at. To be. We can sell out what we've been taught our whole life to be true. What we know from the Bible to be right. But when somebody in, on social media or someone in the media says something, we cower in fear. I've been quite impressed by, you know, I don't really know too much about him, but this guy, Edwin Poots, who's been elected the DUP leader, you know, the public ridicule, as I said this morning, because he just believes things which we take for granted to be true. That the world is so many thousand years old. You know, and you know, he has a view on marriage. But it's so, it's for you, but I mean, that's the trick of the end, to make you know, the way that is presented. But more poignantly in the world, the initiatives that come with will you bow the knee to the secular gods that they have, the secular god of sexuality, which is if the world says it is the way it should be, it's not what God says. Well, how can you live as a person of influence like Daniel and not accommodate Cain? Well, it starts right here. Do I love the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man? And if we look at the history of the martyrs, of Cranmer, of Jim Elliot. These were people who loved the glory that came from God more than the glory that came from man. So I say it to myself, what matters to me more? That God says I agree with you, or that the world says I agree with you? What matters more? That the world says I like you, or that God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. These leaders in John 12, they wanted the praise more from the people than they wanted the praise from God. We find it so difficult, but John Calvin said, can anything be more foolish, or rather, can anything be more beastly than to prefer the silly applauses of men to the judgment of God. I like that, the silly applauses of men. When we will have angel choirs in heaven that will sing. What what you know, what matters more? I think so often people are trying to impress the wrong people. We need to be impressing the right people. And it's easy to be prone to this temptation. To 
be thought to be acceptable, palatable. If everyone already thinks you're good for nothing, well, give me Jesus, you're eating for nothing. But that's why the Gospels in the New Testament say it's harder for the rich, it's harder for the wise, it's harder for the influential. Because they have lots to lose. But will you be found faithful in the sight of God? Proverbs 29. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is saved. 1 Samuel 15. Remember Saul was king, and he was a head taller than everyone else. He was impressive. He is their ruler, their king. He's cast out of his own office, and he says, But the people took of the spoil of sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then to reinforce that Saul hadn't learned his lesson, he says, Samuel, can I have this back? I blew it, but now honour me before the elders of my people. He said, I have sinned, but honour me now. And even in the moment of his failure, he's still thinking about saving face. Because he wanted that praise, that honour of man. It's harder to stand for Christ the higher up you go. It doesn't mean you can't go up. You need to know it's harder. John Calvin, we must also notice that rulers have less courage and con constancy because ambition almost always reigns in them. And there is nothing more servile than that. To put it in a word, earthly honours may be called golden shackles, binding a man so he cannot freely do his duty. Some have golden shackles. They've come by the way of earthly honours. And you think that all you could lose to be counted for Christ, all you could lose to stand up and say what is true about marriage or something, all you could lose. All those earthly honours that you've been afforded, sometimes they're just golden shackles that are chaining us, keeping us from doing the right thing. Second reason people don't believe here in John 12 is because they love the praise that comes from man more than the well-done, good and faithful servant from God. And the third reason people do not believe in Jesus is they do not see what Isaiah saw. They do not see what Isaiah saw. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Well, it's an interesting question, that. For this, this is quite new to me this week, actually. Who's? I know, yeah, who's? Well, Isaiah is speaking of Christ. He saw Christ's glory and spoke of him. I do not think it means Isaiah saw a pre-incarnate Christ. But rather, he saw the glory of Yahweh, the Lord his God. And in beholding that glory, he was beholding the glory of his Son. And he can equate the two. And when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, he was seeing there the glory of Christ. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Do we see what Isaiah saw? We're familiar with Isaiah 6, which is the context of verse 40. I saw him high and lifted up. There is a throne befitting a king. It is no earthly throne on the ground. It is high, it is lifted up. And the train of the road filled the temple. I have an interest in public affairs. I don't know whether any of you saw 
the Queen attending the state opening of Parliament. It was very different, wasn't it? She, you know, she just wore a normal, a normal outfit, and uh, and you know, it was all very different, probably because of COVID. But if you think of a train, you know, you maybe our Queen's coronation or William and Catherine's wedding, the train that was almost as long as Westminster Abbey. That those trains have nothing on the train Isaiah saw. There were two seraphs with six wings, two for flying, two to cover their feet because they're in the presence of the Holy One, and two to cover their faces because they cannot dare to look on God and all the fullness of his glory. They cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. And in Isaiah's vision, the doorposts and the threshold shake. The temple is filled with smoke. Isaiah is undone. He cried out, Woe is me, me and cursed. And when he saw God and his holiness, he said, I should not receive blessing. Woe is me. May the Lord not bless me. May he not keep me. May his face not shine upon me, because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among the people of unclean lips. And I have seen the king, and I do not deserve his grace. That is what Isaiah saw. And in seeing the glory of the Holy One, he saw the one who was to come. And if you know Isaiah, you know that almost more than any other prophet, he beheld the glory of the Messiah who was to come. And he spoke of him, just as it says in John 12, 41. From Isaiah, that's where we know that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. The Isaiah tells us that he would be a prince of peace. Isaiah tells us he is the mighty counsellor. Isaiah tells us he would come from the stump of Jesse. Isaiah tells us he is the Lord coming to comfort his people, the suffering servant, the one proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour, that he would be the one with heaven for his throne and the earth for his footstool. Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him, but Isaiah's heart would not get hard. Because Isaiah would never trade that thunderous applause of heaven for a worldly applause because he saw him in his glory. Isaiah saw him and he would never trade the applause of heaven for the applause of the world. I just wonder, maybe what is deficient in my evangelism is that we don't present to people God in his majesty how great he is. Because the gospel is not just a mass problem. You have debts, you need someone to pay for those who need to be righteous, God is the gospel. But do you see this Christ? No one who truly sees what Isaiah sees will be unchanged, will harden their hearts, will think more of what the Pharisees of the world says than what God, who is high and lifted up, has to say about them. So that's why I think we need to see him. We really need to meet him. We need to see what Isaiah saw. We can meet him on the pages of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit impresses these things in our hearts. Because it's only when we behold will we believe. May the Lord bless the word for his glory, but for our encouragement, that is when we see him in his glory. We're not tempted to trade the applause of the world for the applause of heaven. 
Ne dedi o burası bu arada? 